A fresh look at the race to the moon through the eyes of John Glenn. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. When we think of the space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, we focus much on the Apollo program and the U.S. astronauts who crossed that finish line. But the space race began earlier than that and was far more perilous than we thought. That's according to a new book by author and historian Jeff Seschel. In Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and New Battleground of the Cold War, Seschel re-examines the Cold War space race with a focus on John Glenn and John Kennedy. We'll speak with Seschel about the book and how John Glenn's Friendship 7 flight provided the momentum to win the space race. Then, what does it take to photograph celestial phenomena like solar eclipses? Turns out, a lot of math. Are We There Yet's Randy Vuxta sits down with photographer Julian Diamond about the pre-planning it takes to capture a great shot. That's ahead on Are We There Yet here on WMFE, America's space station. The United States beat the Soviet Union to the moon in 1969 when Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin planted the U.S. flag on the lunar surface. The space race began a decade earlier. Author and historian Jeff Schessel revisits the era by looking through a fresh lens in his new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. We're joined by Schessel now, who begins the conversation bringing us back to the early 1960s at the height of the space race. At the time, no one knew how it was going to turn out. No one knew whether we were ever going to get to the moon uh, or how many people were going to die trying. And John Glenn was one of those. Uh, There was a sense of a real foreboding uh, about his mission to orbit the Earth. But to your question about the, the context... We all know, I think, that the Soviets jumped to an immediate and early lead in the space race. Really, they, they, they brought on the space race in 1957 by sending the first satellite, Sputnik, into orbit around the Earth. But what not everybody knows is that there was a succession of firsts that followed that. And just one after the other, they, they were setting these milestones in space. They sent the first animal into orbit. They sent the first unmanned craft to the moon. It crash landed into the moon as it was supposed to. They didn't yet have the technology to soft land it on the moon. One thing after another, building uh, to the first human being in space in April 1961, Yuri Gagarin, who orbited the earth. And through all of this time, the United States was behind and uncertain whether it was even going to be able to catch up. Was the Soviet lead so formidable that the U.S. just couldn't do it? And it raised larger questions about the strength of a democracy in the atomic age. Was democracy able to muster the willpower, the single-minded intensity that that a totalitarian system could to do something as seemingly impossible as get human beings into space and all the way to the moon? So it wasn't just a test of two space programs. It was a test of two nations and two systems. Mm-hmm. And this is happening in parallel with, as you mentioned, you know, the nuclear arms race of the Cold War. I mean, how how vital was John Glenn's, you know, Freedom 7 flight in this particular moment in history? John Glenn's flight was was very consequential for, for a number of reasons, some technologically, um, but, but also symbolically. And that, again, is the story that I try to tell in the book. Uh, By the time John Glenn got into space and orbited the Earth, it was February 1962. 
And I mentioned a moment ago that Yuri Gagarin had orbited the Earth in April of 1961. That's almost a year. Almost a year had passed before the United States was able to match that feat. And in that intervening period of time, the Soviets had sent another man into space. And Gagarin orbited once. German Titov, in August of 1961, orbited for 24 hours. He orbited the Earth 17 and a half times. And so there was a sense not only that the United States wasn't catching up, but that it was falling farther and farther behind. And this coincided, as you said, with with some of the most uh, intense and, and perilous moments of, of the Cold War. Uh, the, this, it, it, I mentioned uh, Titov's flight at the beginning of, of August 1961. A week later, just one week later, the Soviets began building the wall in Berlin. And just two weeks after that, they began testing the most powerful nuclear weapons that the world had ever seen, exploding these 50 megaton bombs uh, in the skies above uh, Central Asia, really for all the world to see. So we tend to look at these stories as happening on separate tracks. But for President Kennedy and really for the rest of the world, it was all happening in the same frame at the same time and represented the same challenge. So when John Glenn finally gets into space in February 1962, it is a belated but powerful answer to these questions that are plaguing Kennedy and plaguing the United States. Did we have what it, what it took to catch up to the Soviets? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we know in this Cold War that the two sides, you know, the U.S. and the Soviets, and, and you know, we've heard from, you know, about Kennedy and Khrushchev and, and that relationship. But in, in this book, you kind of look at the Mercury 7 astronauts as being a part of, of, of this Cold War. I mean, how, how, how much did they know about their importance uh, in this particular moment in history? I mean, tell us a bit about the astronauts during during this time? Well, the astronauts had all been military test pilots. And there was some talk early uh, in, in, uh, in the early months of NASA, and really in the first year, about finding other kinds of, of, uh, of amazingly adventurous spirits to fly these things or, or to ride up in these things. It wasn't clear how much flying was going to get done. Uh, and, and they thought about deep sea divers, and they thought about uh, balloonists and, and other adventurers. Um, but ultimately, President Eisenhower made the decision that it would make sense for a number of reasons uh, to, to put military test pilots uh, in these things, whatever these things ended up looking like. And so many of them had been in, in combat, not all of them, but they had all, again, come from the military branches, and they were cold warriors. Uh, I don't think any of them were particularly ideologues, but they had either fought in wars or had helped to advance uh, the national defense by testing these high-performance aircraft. And, and so they were, they were bought into the mission. They understood that this was not, as it might have seemed to some, a scientific experiment. Certainly, that was an element of this, and it was of interest to some, like John Glenn and Scott Carpenter. It wasn't particularly of interest to, to many of the others. Um, but they understood that they were in a contest of great consequence with the Soviet Union, and that it wasn't just a race, that it wasn't just a, uh, like the Olympics, um, but, but carried forward into orbit. This was an existential struggle, and uh, there were polls being taken at that time uh, by Gallup and others around the world. And it was clear that the Soviet advantage in space was being interpreted as a Soviet advantage militarily and in in other respects. And so it really did seem that 
that there was a danger here that communism was going to become the wave of the future. And so the Mercury 7 understood themselves to be essentially soldiers or pilots in that effort. Mm-hmm. In in writing this book, you you looked a lot at John Glenn's personal archives and, and spoke with his family. I'm wondering what you learned from him that, that we didn't know before. John Glenn is is typically portrayed in, in pop culture as a as a Boy Scout, um, as a Sunday school teacher. That's how he appears in the the right stuff. That's how he's appeared in other uh, movies and, and and other portrayals. And and there's some truth to this. I mean, he was he was a scout. He was a Sunday school teacher. This is authentically who he was. He he was happy talking about his faith. He loved his family. Um, he was faithful to his wife, which was frankly not something that could be said of, of most of the other astronauts. This is who he was. But what I found in going through the archives and, and talking to the people who knew him well is that he was more complex than that. He was edgier. He was more ambitious. He was more fiercely competitive. He was a fierce combat pilot. You would never know it from watching these interviews of him in the late 1950s, or early 1960s with his, his sunny kind of aw shucks demeanor. But but he was uh, he was a, a killer in, in in and and he wrote his family at, at one point in Korea and he said maybe it's abnormal to in, enjoy uh, killing people but if so I'm abnormal then because I'm having a wonderful war I'm having a wonderful time up there in that jet shooting down MIGs and and so you know Glenn uh, was. Uh, Glenn was not only the the most charismatic and sort of cherubic of of the astronauts, but he was also the most decorated combat veteran of the entire group. And so there was a lot more to John Glenn and those within the program, uh, particularly his competitors, his rivals, the other astronauts, they saw it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, so there's, you know, two sides to, to Glenn. There's this, you know, this public perception of him and, and then this behind the scenes um, that you uncover in this book. I mean, what went into picking John Glenn as the one for this Freedom 7 flight? I mean, how, how much of that, you know, public persona that he had, how important was that in, in the selection for him to be on this mission? It depended on who you talked to at NASA. The, the truth is that uh, there was a certain element of happenstance in Glenn coming up in the rotation when it was time finally for an orbital flight. He was not selected as the first astronaut to go into space. That honor went to Alan Shepard. And then the second was was Gus Grissom. And Glenn, to his great frustration and bitter frustration, was backup on both of those flights. Everybody, even within the program, people thought Glenn was going to be the guy. The public thought Glenn would be the guy. The press was rooting for him. It was sort of understood that Glenn was, by a mile, the first among equals. And yet he didn't get the pick. And there are a number of reasons for that, some that are probably obscure to us today. It does seem that not only was there some resentment of his celebrity among the other astronauts, there was also some resentment among the managers at NASA and the feeling that that Glenn was too much in the spotlight and it made him harder to control. And he was also perfectly willing to, to speak his mind uh, to to his his managers, and they didn't always appreciate it. So there was um, an element of putting Glenn in his place by leaving him lower in, in the rotation. Glenn was supposed to take a suborbital flight, like Shepard and Grissom. He was supposed to go up and come back down, 15 minutes. That's as long as, as, as Shepard was, was in that, uh, w- w- was in the air and was in space, and same for Grissom. 
Uh, same thing was supposed to be true for Glenn. But by the time Glenn's number came up in the in the in the rotation, and he was selected, these short shots, as they were called within NASA, had become an embarrassment. The Russians, as I said before, had already orbited uh, a man. They had already sent Yuri Gagarin around the Earth, and here we were just sending these shots up and letting them drop into the ocean. And it had just become politically untenable for NASA to continue to do that. And so they needed to change missiles. <laughs> you couldn't ride a redstone rocket all the way into orbit. And so those suborbitals were uh, not a, f- a failure of nerve. They were, they were uh, a, a, a frank recognition that we just didn't have the, the thrust in our rockets to, to get a capsule all the way into orbit at that time. That had to wait for another rocket to come online, and that was the Atlas rocket. And the Atlas rocket had been tested, and the Atlas rocket had failed spectacularly many times, blowing up on the launch pad, winding up in the sea. And so there was a lot of of nervousness and and really outright fear within NASA and and really across the United States about putting a man, in particular John Glenn, on top of that rocket and sending him into space. But that was that was essentially the the way the the cards were, were put down for him. It was not that he was held back because of his special skill, either um, uh, in the cockpit or uh, in front of the microphones. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned just how dangerous this mission was. It's so much so that, you know, in the book, you, you describe that there was a tape that that Glenn had prepared for his children and family in case he didn't come back, right? Publicly, Glenn was very calm and very calming. The nation was was on edge, as I described. The President Kennedy was on edge. There was a lot of fear about this flight. And any time Glenn stepped out and talked to reporters, he was full of confidence, uh, full of good cheer. He was sure everything was going to come out all right. But privately, uh, he was not so sure. The Mercury 7 had had a, a private conversation, the seven of them, at some point early in the program. And they, they agreed that inevitably one of them was going to get killed in the course of these missions. And it was really just a question of which one and when. And Glenn, as I mentioned, was the first to ride this dangerous Atlas rocket. So Glenn began to, to wonder whether it was going to be him. And the longer his flight was delayed, months and months his flight was delayed, 10 times his flight was scrubbed over the course of four months for all sorts of reasons, technical problems of just about every variety, problems with the weather. They just couldn't seem to find a a good day to to send this thing up, which just contributed to the feeling that that this flight was ill-fated. And so Glenn sat there in isolation uh, in in Hangar S in, in Cape Canaveral, and he stewed about it. He worried about it. And he sat down, as, as you said, and he, he wrote a script, and from that script made a reel-to-reel recording, one for his kids and one for his wife, Annie, that would only be played in the event that he didn't come back alive. And I found the script for the recording for his children. I found it in his archives, and it, it begins very frankly, he says, if you hear this, I've been killed. And he goes on to talk about his faith. He talks about his belief in an afterlife. He even suggests that he'll be sending his kids, who are teenagers at the time, sending them a signal from the afterlife so that they know that he's okay. He talks to them about how he wants them to conduct themselves at the funeral at Arlington uh, with the understanding that there probably wouldn't even be a body to bury given the nature of a tragedy in space. It's very difficult 
chilling reading. And one can only imagine what the recording sound sounded like. Um, the recording uh, seems to, to be nowhere to be found, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if Glenn or, or if Annie Glenn had, had destroyed it at some point after the mission. More of that conversation with historian and author Jeff Shessel on his new book, Mercury Rising. That's after the break. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Jeff Shessel. He's a historian and author of the new book, Mercury Rising. Earlier, we spoke about John Glenn's Friendship 7 flight and just how perilous that mission was. Now we continue the conversation about the early days of the space race and how John Glenn perceived his role in it. This did propel the U.S. to win the space race. I mean, did did Glenn realize just how impactful his 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 mission was in in establishing not only getting humans to the moon but but winning this Cold War race in space? Glenn absolutely understood how important the mission was. He understood it before he went into orbit, and he certainly understood it afterwards, seeing the incredible reaction, not just in the United States, but across the, the free world. The sense of, of relief, almost desperate relief, that it had been a success, and that the United States could credibly now compete with the Soviet Union in space. There was no guarantee at that point that the U.S. was going to win the space race. There was no guarantee we were going to get to the moon or get safely to the moon. But there was the sense that we, we had a real shot now, which, which very few people really believed prior to, to Glenn's orbiting the Earth. There was this sense that America was stuck in a distant second place and would never get there. there the estimates that were being made by defense experts and others were that we were not just a year behind the Soviets, but five years, maybe even 10 years behind the, the Soviet Union. But when Glenn succeeded in this spectacular way uh, in orbiting in the Earth, there was, there was a, a restoration of, of self-belief and self-confidence in the United States, and it infused NASA with energy. It infused the Congress with, with, with the sense of confidence in the program and a greater willingness to invest. And Kennedy had already, by that point, pledged that the United States would, would send a, a man to the moon by the end of the decade. He did that in, in May of 1961, many months before Glenn flew. But it was just not a credible promise. It was seen as, as um, pretty, forgive the pun, but it was pretty starry-eyed. Nobody really believed, even within NASA, there was a lot of doubt that they could actually do it. But Glenn's flight made it credible. Again, no guarantees, but it made it credible. Thinking to today, um, you know, are you seeing parallels in the space program now? I mean, obviously, we don't have the, the Cold War race with the Soviets anymore, but there does seem to be an, another adversary emerging in China. I mean, are there some similarities to, to what happened in, in the 60s to, uh, to today? There are some similarities, and, and we are in something of a Cold War competition uh, with the Chinese in space. It's not quite as bilateral uh, or binary as, as the competition was in the early 1960s. There are a lot of players now in space. There are a lot of countries that are sending one thing or another up into space uh, who have designs on getting to the moon, who have designs on getting to Mars. But I, I think where the threat is, is most imminent is in uh, orbit around the Earth. Um, China and Russia both have invested very heavily over a period of time in, in what the experts call counter space capabilities. 
What that means is the ability to destroy or, or disrupt satellite systems. And of course, we depend on, on satellite systems for everything, for predicting the, the weather to communicating with one another, um, the internet, national security, everything. Everything depends on, on these satellite systems. And so the ability to uh, create those disruptions in, in, in space um, are extremely consequential uh, across, uh, uh, across society and, and across the economy. And so the United States has, has been a, a little bit slow to recognize the challenge and to invest sufficiently in addressing the challenge. And so we are once again playing catch up in space. And yes, there may be a race to Mars going on, um, but really of more imminent and, and, and practical concern would be what's going on in orbit around the Earth. Mm -hmm. And I mean, do you see a character or a hero emerging like John Glenn in this new space race? Or, or who will be the kind of the face of, of the U.S. in this new competition? Well, uh, if you ask Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos, they would probably each nominate themselves. <laughs> and of course, we just learned that Jeff Bezos has nominated himself to, to fly on, on one of his... Go to space. Exactly, exactly. Um, I don't know that the public is ever going to embrace either of those billionaires or any other as, as the next John Glenn. Um, you know, we've had so many astronauts doing amazing things, and we send so many folks into space that it's difficult uh, for one to emerge. The Mercury 7 were introduced with incredible fanfare in, in early 1959 as America's first and only crop of astronauts to that point. And America lived with these seven for a couple of years as they trained before any of them got into space. So they were just part of the fabric of American culture and, and society. They were well-known to everyone. They were on the, the cover of Life magazine. There were profiles. There were films about them. I don't think we could have that kind of focus on any particular astronaut in the present moment because there are just too many of them. And we are, frankly, kind of used to seeing people go up to space and, and come back. And, and many of them, um, unfortunately, in a, in a way, are, are kind of anonymous uh, to us right now. So that's not to say that heroes won't emerge. And certainly um, when Americans go back to the moon, as uh, we are planning to do, and someday when someone becomes the first human being to set foot on Mars, uh, then I, I think humanity will take note. We've been speaking with Jeff Seschel. He's the, he's the author of Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Jeff, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks for having me. celestial phenomena in the sky, like solar eclipses, with our own eyes is pretty easy. Just look up, with the right eyewear, of course. But capturing those images on film, well, that takes a lot of planning and a little bit of math. For our segment, Shooting Stars, Are We There Yet's Randy Vuxta spoke with Julian Diamond. He's a Hudson Valley photographer to talk about the pre-planning of these shots and the importance of incorporating terrestrial subjects, too. Math is extremely important to setting up a shot, and that goes for, for all photography, especially astrophotography, where there are terrestrial elements like that that you want to line up in your shot. And a lot of that math uh, can be done and is done with apps and with programs like, uh, you know, the photographer's ephemeris. But a lot of it, a lot of it, uh, it still pays dividends to do it by hand. You do need uh, at least a rudimentary understanding of 
geometry, trigonometry, uh, how to uh, how to work out the angles. You know, once you're once you're there and you're on location, there's a lot of math and figuring out your exposure and figuring out you know the 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 brightness of your object and how that how that's going to inform your exposure. So it's it's definitely an analytical field, even if at the end of the day it produces what many of us would consider to be an art. The photo that I love from you is this eclipse picture where the eclipse makes the sun look like a shark fin with a fire tower in front of it. How much time did it take you to get this shot with the pre-planning included? The the idea for the shot started this, well, the, the first time I became keenly aware of this uh, partial solar eclipse, and that would have been towards the end of last year. And then I saw, I said, oh yeah, I remember that, you know, looking looking at the the eclipse almanacs. And I said, oh, well, it's going to be a sunrise eclipse. It's going to be low on the horizon. I'm going to be able to incorporate a cool foreground element into that. And I said, well, it has to be a fire tower because that's kind of a, a, a long running series of mine. So throughout the first, you know, five, six months of the year, whenever I had a few spare moments, I would, I would load up uh, Google Earth on the photographer's ephemeris. And I would check different fire towers throughout New York and throughout uh, Western New England. But that was a very sort of idle and sort of casual research. And so the, the real crunch started about two or three weeks before the eclipse. And that was when I said, okay, I still don't have a clear lead. Uh, I really need to, you know, to, to settle in and to just find what I'm looking for. And so at that point, I, I started doing physical scouting trips out into the field. What tools do you use to capture your shots? I, I use uh, Nikon cameras, so Nikon DSLRs. I have, I have some full frames and crop sensor cameras, and uh, I choose which one I'm going to use based on the application. So for, for this, this uh, solar eclipse shot last week, I wanted as much reach as I could. Uh, so I used my crop sensor camera. Um, and all else being equal, that gives you a 1.5 times crop over the, the full frame. And you do lose some image quality, but you gain that reach and that resolution. So that was important for a shot like this. You've mentioned that you really enjoy shooting with fire towers in the background. Can you explain that? I, I love fire towers. There are the, uh, you know, for those who don't know, up here uh, in the Northeast and around the country initially, they, in the, in the early 20th century, they erected hundreds, uh, possibly thousands of these steel fire towers. And there were observers who would get paid to, to stay up there and to live up there in the summers. After they were decommissioned, most of them have been torn down or have fallen down. But in New York and New England, there has been this uh, resurgence in the popularity of these towers as they become restored and rededicated for recreational use. So now fire towers where you can do a relatively easy hike and get this wonderful panoramic view dozens of miles away in all directions. And I think that the hike is wonderful, the views are wonderful, and the history is even better. And so I've always been attracted to, to this concept of these, these relics of, of sort of a fleeting moment. And I think the juxtaposition sort of, of that, that fleetingness, right? So that, that mark of you know, human endeavor, human, uh, is a great contrast with whatever cosmic body I'm photographing next to the, the, next to the tower. They, they predate the, the earth in a lot of cases and they'll, they'll, they'll be around long after the earth is gone. And I just think that contrast is a very compelling composition. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Are We There Yet? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Randy Vuxta. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>